The Landlord and Lawyer Podcast with Ben Beadle and Tessa Shepherdson. Hello, everybody, um, and welcome. He's Ben Beadle, he's the landlord. And she's Tessa Shepherdson, she's the lawyer. And together we are the Landlord and Lawyer Podcast, and we've got an absolute brilliant guest uh, this, this month, which is Julie Ford. Yeah, she's great, Julie. Uh, well known in the sector. Um, got a lot of views. Uh, you'll see her uh, at most uh, industry events and uh, sensible lady. So let's listen to what she had to say. Welcome, everybody, and welcome particularly to our wonderful guest, Julie Ford, um, who is here to talk to us about um, all things helping tenants, I suppose. But we rather thought that as we've just had the Queen's speech, uh, we might talk about that. But Julie, before we do anything, can you introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about you? Absolutely. Thank you, Tessa. My name is Julie Ford. I run a company called Gothard Row Landlord Services, and I support landlords with problem tenants, predominantly rent arrears, and I help find funding, grants and legacies to help those landlords get the rent arrears in their back pocket where it should be, so tenants don't face eviction and have the threat of vet debt hanging over their heads either. That sounded like an elevator speech. <laughs> <laughs> She's been prepping that in front of the mirror, I bet. <laughs> I've been talking a lot recently. <laughs> But, I mean, you also you also do mediation work as well, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I've been a trained mediator for a couple of years now, but prior to that, um, I worked in the Citizens Advice, where pretty much your day job is mediating negotiation with landlords, tenants, um, and, and the higher upper echelons of housing. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. Mediation, I think, is a big part of, of where we're going now in the private rented sector. Um, being able to get the outcomes that landlords and tenants are both happy with is much better than going through the court system where sometimes you can be quite limited by what the courts are actually able to provide. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's sometimes a perception, isn't there, that mediation is this sort of wishy-washy thing that, you know, isn't really any good and, you know, landlords really ought to go immediately for the eviction button. Um, whereas I, I don't think that's right. I think mediation can be brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the amount of cases that I've been working on recently, and to be honest, COVID um, saw a huge increase in the amount of mediation that was taking place because the courts were shut, because notice periods were so much longer. Um, and what we've been finding is there are still a huge percentage of tenants out there that are can't pay, not won't pay. And it's those can't pays that are happy to work with mediation and get an outcome where they don't feel threatened and the stress of, you know, the bailiffs coming round and everything like that. And the landlord getting a solution much quicker they're getting their rent arrears okay sometimes they might have to write a little bit of it off but they're still getting something and that something is much better than going through the courts the additional cost of court and then getting an outcome that's maybe five pound a month for the next 25 years whereas the tenants got an opportunity to put forward what they can do how they can do it and when it comes to moving out the tenants can work with their timeline and again it's usually much quicker than than the courts when we come to helping the tenants move out as well and Julie, doesn't this sort of, you know, uh, approach reinforce that uh, landlords are there to be, you know, to want to help their tenants where they where they can? Absolutely. I mean, the, the so I would say 87 percent of the, the cases that I've worked on have 
all of those cases have been brought by landlords all of those cases have been brought by landlords that want to help their tenants you know if a landlord didn't want to help their tenant they'd be going straight to court get the eviction get the bailiff business done this is about getting a mutually beneficial outcome that supports the tenant to move on as much as it supports the landlord so absolutely yeah, I mean, it's in the landlord's financial interest, really, to, to be friends with, well, not perhaps to be friends with their tenant, but, you know, to have a good working relationship. Mm. Um, I agree with that. And I think it goes back to the whole ethos that the tenant is your customer. Mm. And it's understanding that there is does have to be a level of customer service there. But obviously, that that works both ways as well. The tenant needs to behave in a tenant-like manner. Um the, the landlord needs to be a good landlord but yeah absolutely the the mediation side of things is really it because your mediator is neutral they're neither for the landlord nor for the tenant that nobody has to win for me mediation is a win-win because both parties come out with something that they're happy to agree on whereas if you go to court you're only going to get the outcome the court is able to give you yeah I mean the thing about court proceedings I mean many court proceedings not just with landlords is often the you have to have a legal reason to go to court mm. and that often isn't actually the problem yeah that's the legal point that they hang the case on but it's not the problem between the parties like you know if the if the tenant isn't paying the rent the landlord will go to court to evict them for non-payment of rent arrears but the the re, the real problem may be because the landlord isn't doing the repairs and, you know, the tenant is withholding the rent because the landlord isn't doing the repairs and the, the landlord can't afford to do the repairs because yeah. the tenant's withholding the rent and it gets in a cycle. But also mediation allows both parties to be heard, have their voice out there but not allow their emotions to, to muddy the waters because they're never communicating with each other. They're communicating with the mediator at all times who will then reframe things and help them look at it from the other person's perspective and also help them work out what is actually their priority. I, I had a case recently where the tenant hasn't paid rent for nine months. When I actually got down to the bones of it, it's because the neighbor had said something to her hadn't apologized but she knew the neighbor was the landlord's best friend so technically that was the landlord's fault by the time I got down to the bottom of that and got the written apology that she wanted all the rent was paid business done it was problem solved and sometimes it can be something as small as that but because the communication is broken down and the emotions are in the way you don't actually get down to the brass tacks of what some of the issues really are and Julie mm. one of the things we saw announced in the Queen's speech last week uh, was uh, an ombudsman, interesting use of term uh, for the private rented sector. Is that a sort of a nod uh, by government uh, as an endorsement, really, that, you know, this sort of informal resolution to some of the issues that are going on is here to stay? I think so, absolutely. And it, and it makes more sense as well, because when you're dealing with people and personalities and, you know, this is somebody's home, as much as it's the landlord's property, it's the tenant's home and being able to resolve something mutually and, and beneficial to both people can only be a better way. Um, going to court is just a very harsh and should be the last step really um, for landlords. But I think it is a good, it's a good first step in improving the private rented sector as a whole because it gives the opportunity for both parties to be heard neutrally and unbiased. Whereas obviously a court, a solicitor is working for the person that's paying for them. A mediator is working for both. And one of the other things that you know, is a cause for concern in the industry, I think, is if you do need to access recourse and justice, you can expect to wait the best part of a year in doing so. That can't be right, can it? 
No, absolutely. It shouldn't take that long. Um, but again, it, it's, it's not just going to be a quick fix for that. We need to look at our court systems. Do we have a separate housing court that is dedicated just to those things? You know, that the whole legal process needs to be streamlined and revisited because, yes, it was great 20, 30 years ago, but it doesn't work for the society that we have today and it doesn't work for the private rented sector that we've evolved into. Yeah, I mean, just looking at mediation and court proceedings generally, what often isn't realised is that for practically every type of legal claim, um, there is a pre-action protocol and there is also an overarching pre-action protocol. And, and all of them say that people should try and resolve it outside the courts before going to court. Absolutely. And, and that, that's a duty on everybody. You know, the courts do not like gung-ho applications and sort of like gotcha type claims, you mm. know. Um, and if you do that, you're likely to be penalised in cost and the judge isn't going to be very pleased with you. Agree with that, uh, Tessa. And I think, you know, one of the one of the things that we should remind ourselves about is that um, you know, we stressed this during during COVID with our sort of golden golden rules that we'd agreed with the judiciary. The fact of the matter is, by the time you get into the court system, two thirds of uh, respondents do not engage. And so it's, you know, it's really important that we remember that any process that has to be set up, it often it's not the landlord that isn't engaging it's the fact that you know tenants look at the situation and think well i haven't got a hope in hell's chance of anything positive being able to happen here um and put their put you know put their head in the ground whereas i do think with with mediation actually there is the chance of certainly bringing a tendency to a managed conclusion um uh perhaps with a reduction in arrears or a you know a, a solving of whatever problem is is amounting to those as we heard from 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 julie so i think making sure that tenants are aware of you know the types of tools that are, are out there to help them is is hugely important yeah i i absolutely agree with that and the tenants that i've worked with in the last couple of years they've all said the same thing it's the first time i felt listened to and mm. that's been so important to them um and I, I i think moving forward mediation a landlord redress of some form is is only going to be a positive step we we also saw uh in the queen's speech julie um the government reconfirm for the umpteenth time their position on section 21 but we saw some good news around strengthening of possession grounds for antisocial behavior and persistent arrears yeah absolutely i mean i think this was a much more positive queen's speech for the private rented sector um previously i think it's been a bit watered down we haven't really had the information to back it up um to know where they're taking it where are the next steps i mean the renters reform bill has been sat in parliament since april 2019 i think um moving at a glacial pace um through the system but i think absolutely we're a bit more clued up now of what their proposals are. I think strengthening and revisiting the the ground eight, uh, the section eight grounds are, you know, it's the starting block and that's where they've got to start because you can abolish a no fault notice, but if you don't have something to back it up and replace it or give landlords the opportunity to get their property back when there is no fault on behalf of the tenant is the most important thing because at the moment what I'm hearing from landlords is a fear that abolishment of section 21 means they will never be able to evict a tenant and we know that's not right. <laughs> 
Indeed, and I think you know, one of the good things that we, we see off the back of this announcement is that it's going to be channeled through a white paper. Mm-hmm. And for those you know, of those landlords listening, wondering exactly what that means, but it's not a bill. Um, it's not a bill initially anyway. Uh, and there is scope, I've been told by Eddie Hughes, uh, that that document is going to be open for challenge and further, further discussion. So I, I do wonder how quickly uh, some of this stuff is going to take to to implement, but there's never been a good time uh, or better time rather than to be engaging with your MP, uh, a member of a, a trade body to make sure that your views are represented, because this is going to be the biggest change for certainly in, in, in my lifetime. Would you agree, Julie? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we haven't really seen such dramatic change in legislation for many years. I mean, I think really it's when ASTs were brought to the fore with the the Housing Act of of 88, I think was the last time we saw such an upheaval of legislation and how it would change and and restructure the private rented sector moving forward. Um, This is going to be one of those game changers. This is something that we will be talking about in the history books. Um, It's just important that they get it right. Um, and strengthening the the grounds under Section 8, it, I, I think, is the most important thing that they could do. Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember the Rent Act, um, because being being geriatric, I can, uh, I, 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 I can remember when the Rent Act was, was the act. I was, I was, a, I was a young thing. Um, <laughs> Miss a little of a girl. Um, but it was, it was very difficult. I mean, the there were very few rented properties because it was practically impossible to get your property back. And that's the mm. spectre that hangs over. And landlords remember that. Mm. And, and I can remember, I can remember, I had a case where somebody let her friend in escaping for an abusive husband into a property for a six month holiday. And 30 years later, they were still there. And uh, we managed to get them out. Um, but we can't have that sort of situation mm. again because nobody's going to want to rent property to tenants and it's important that there is property rented for tenants because where else are they going to live they've sold off most of the social housing well i mean if you look at the strategy that that that's currently in play it doesn't lend itself to very many alternatives does it yeah you know, we haven't seen a big social housing uh build, building campaign launch we haven't seen significant um, uh, you know, incentives for home ownership, and we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis uh, where inflation is, you know, suggested to be double digits by the end of the year. That doesn't seem to me to be uh, a ripe opportunity to turn generation rent into generation buy. So, you know, mm. we have to be careful what we wish for here. And, uh, you know, without making too fine a political point, you know, those are conversations and, and briefings that the NRLA is, is pushing heavily because, you know, we can't always be the whipping boys here. You know, l- look who's providing homes. Yes, by all means, make it make it uh, as safe as you want. Make it make sure that the property is category one, hazard free, damp free, all of those, you know, fairly basic things in my view but remember who's providing providing homes yeah i mean if you're a private landlord you don't have to be a private landlord you can sell up Mm. and not be a private landlord anymore and the question is who do you sell your properties to um is it is it going to continue to be in the the rented sector and if you sell it to a family that's nice but there's yeah. a lot there's an awful lot of people who are never going to be able to afford to, to buy unfortunately and they, they've got to live somewhere yeah 
Absolutely. And, and I think what we're seeing more and more of is, yes, the, the smaller portfolio landlords with maybe one, two, three properties are getting out of the industry because they're self-managing and the amount of legislation in place, it's, it's too much for anybody unless it's their full-time job. To, you know, to be doing your full-time job and trying to manage your own properties on top, it's, it's too much for most people. But what we are seeing is the properties that are being sold are being snapped up by um, limited company landlords who are then handing them over as, as social housing or supported housing. So although that is going back into the rented sector, it's not going back into the private rented sector. So those properties are actually being sent out and away from the private rented sector. So we are seeing slowly but surely the properties being removed from, from the PRS that stop people actually being able to rent and you're going to get tenants that will stay put because they have nowhere else to go it's not because they want to be belligerent it's because there is nowhere for them to go where do they go they can't be street homeless and we're seeing more more of those tales uh, at the moment aren't we mm. aren't we julie where you know literally the best will in the world the, the the tenant wishes to move on but there isn't yeah, there isn't either suitable accommodation or accommodation that they're looking for um, and that's posing you know, very significant challenges between between landlords and tenants. So this whole supply of of of, of homes is of critical importance. And uh, you know, we'd like to see more PRS homes. Of course, we would. But the reality is, we need homes of of all types of of tenure. And I'm not so sure that the the build to rent uh, uh, market, if you, if you will, is the panacea that government feels it it, it could be. Yeah, I mean, it's often rabbit hutches for um, for students and uh, young professionals, isn't it? It's not really suitable for family homes. Yeah, and again, it's kind of trying to bridge those gaps that in the private rented sector, landlords have the ability to turn down. So I've seen quite a lot of build-to-rent operators saying, oh, you know, bring your pets. Great, bring your pets. But if you've got all of these pets in one building, that in itself is going to be carnage. Um, at least landlords have got the ability, you know, if it's an HMO, for example, to say no pets, because it's not going to be fair on the pet. Let's let's be honest. If you've got four cats and seven dogs, that's not going to be nice for any environment. So I think I think they're trying to gimmick it a little bit with the build to rent, some of the um, operators, not all of them, but I do think they're trying to fill the bits that the private rented sector don't, but without really understanding the implications of that. Hmm. And also, build to rent feels expensive to me. Mm. Um, I mean, it does feel expensive. And, and you know, as you know, uh, Tessa, I, I used to work for an organisation that did not just PRS, but, but build to rent as well. And, and I think, you know, it's clearly it's got its role. It's, it's got an appeal. Um, but I don't know if I want Indian head massages on a Tuesday morning uh, in the communal space uh, and uh, salmon and eggs uh, for breakfast at the weekend all thrown in or whether I just want a bit more space in the garden. Uh, maybe I'm getting old, you know, dare I say it. I mean, most most families want a small house with a garden, don't they? Perhaps with a park nearby and a decent school. But I think also with the way that we've changed our working environment in the last two years, a lot of people are looking for that second bedroom to be their working from home space. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's changed the private rented sector considerably because now the one bedroom properties that were the small ones that, that a single person would happily move into, it isn't providing the space for them to be able to separate work and home. Hmm. Julie, thinking about, you know, what the... the build to rent does quite well which is I guess you know the marketing the communications the safety element we saw a lot of discussion in the Queen's speech about 
decent homes and obviously this is uh the decent home standard specifically this is a, a pet project of 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 michael gove have you got any views on the sort of aspirations and the idea of one standard for the sector whether that makes sense or not um i think having a standard makes sense absolutely we all need a starting block of where our properties are going to be acceptable i mean we've all seen the horror stories of, of some of the conditions of, of private rented properties but whether that is going to be a one-size-fits-all I don't see how that in itself will work. There, there needs to be a minimum standard that is acceptable because you already have different levels and types of properties out there. You've got something that was built in 1700 and something. It's never going to be of the same standard as something that's being built today. So whatever standards we put in place, they need to be more along a health and safety perspective rather than the type of build and how it's built because you're never going to be able to change single single skin brick into something that's got you know the 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 eco that we need for today so yes there needs to be a standard but it needs to be more health and safety than than anything else i think the problem is we've already got standards i don't think the problem is the standards i think the problem is the enforcement yeah there isn't but, proper enforcement and that's why we have the criminal landlords because they say hey you know, we can go in and do this with impunity. Nobody's going to bother us. I mean, thankfully, some local authorities are getting more proactive, but they could do a lot more and should do. But I think we've always seen that every time there's a new piece of legislation or something gets um, improved, we are seeing it fall down when it comes to enforcement, mainly because it's always put on local councils to enforce it. Those local councils are struggling under their own work. Um, they don't have the staff or the funding a lot of the time to be able to carry out those enforcements, which need, need its own dedicated team. It shouldn't be just an add on job for the housing officers. Yeah, I mean, they used to be very good teams, but the trouble is most of them were made redundant under austerity. Mm. Um, and I'm afraid they've all become addicted uh, to the, the cash of, of licensing, whether it's uh, mandatory or whatever type of licensing it is. And that's unfortunately to the detriment of, of standards and enforcement. There's no link between, uh, in my view, uh, licensing and, and, and standards. And uh, you know, we do need the various pieces of regulation to be uh, enforced. And that's the point that we have certainly made to, to Gove and, and others, not more of the same. Let's take what we have. Let's mm -hmm. uh, let, let's let's put that under a standard that's easy for, for the average punter to understand whether the the home is uh, you know hazard free and damp free and you know, it's got an EPC and all of that sort of jazz. But you know, we don't need more, more, you know, more of the same. It's it's not an under-regulated sector by any stretch. No, absolutely. It also makes it more complicated. It does, I think. And I think what will be interesting will be, you know, obviously the the decent home standard is something that applies to the social se sector mm. at the moment. Um, you know, we've we've obviously been working on this for for weeks and, and months because we've known the direction of travel and uh, we've already spoken to. Um, his department about uh, our own version of the standard but the the issue is that that standard as it's drafted has some really arbitrary measurements in terms of you know 15 year old kitchens or whatever it you know whatever the the suggested lifespan is now um you know if you've come to my uh, uh house you may well see uh a, a slightly um, fashionable avocado green bathroom who knows um, but the point is that's perfectly functional 
And, you know, are they really going to be asking landlords to rip out things that are perfectly functional and safe just because you've put something should last for 10 years? I'm not sure that that is a sensible approach, either in the social or private sector, to be honest with you. You surely want to make sure it's it's safe and usable and, and all of that sort of stuff above anything else. Absolutely. But again, sorry, Tessa, go on. I was just going to say ripping things out unnecessarily is also goes against the sort of environmental standards that we ought to have. You know, we ought to reuse things rather than just replace things. Yeah, um, all I was going to add to that was, you know, getting landlords to rip stuff out and putting new bathrooms and new kitchens in. Those aren't cheap options, though. That's not like changing a set of curtains. That's going to have an, a knock on effect to the rent increases because landlords are going to want to recoup that money that they've invested in these properties that they've been forced to change functional kitchens, functional bathrooms. Uh, and that is a big reason why landlords increase the rent. I mean, even if you've got a protected tenancy where, where you have a fair rent, one of the reasons for increasing the rent is that you've done major changes to the property. And that's why a lot of protected tenants block landlords from doing improvements because they know it's going to mean an increase in their rent, which they won't be able to afford because they're on a fixed income. Yeah. There are certainly a lot of issues around the direction of travel, I think, uh, uh, Julie. I don't think anybody thinks that they are per se a bad idea but they are quite delicate and finely balanced issues, I think. Um, and, you know, the point that we are making uh, to ministers is that um, there is clearly a sign that, that some smaller landlords are, are voting with their feet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, now, if that's your policy, you know, you're achieving uh, what, you, what you want to achieve, right? But I'm not so sure it is. And I don't think um, the Conservative government really want a mass exodus of landlords. I'm sure, they want you know bad landlords to exit the, se the sector. But do you think there is the scope for um, encouraging investment in the PRS in the absence of any other um, uh, methods of kind of expanding the net supply of properties? Any any views around that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the amount of property networking events that I go to um, on, a, on a monthly basis, I'm seeing more and more of the younger generation wanting to become landlords. I'm seeing people who are 18, 19, 20 um, getting into different strategies in property. I mean, obviously, we know rent to rent is probably one of the the easiest ones to get into because you don't need as much cash outlay, you don't need to own the property. But we are certainly seeing more and more young people. And I don't know whether it's worth the government looking at that genre of landlords entering the industry to see if there is some kind of grant funding that could help them invest in property. You know, where we've got the the, the help to buy for first-time buyers, why not have help to buy for first-time landlords? You know, something like that might be helpful to the system because we're not going to build enough properties for people to move into because people cannot afford to live in their own area. It doesn't matter where you are in the UK, the new builds are not being occupied by people who were born and bred in that area. They're being occupied by people that are moving in. And that means that those people that were born and bred have got to move out. So that everybody is becoming quite nomadic, just trying to find somewhere to live. And I think maybe an incentive to help landlords in the community in some way, maintain a community. You know, that's 
really for me what what being in rented accommodation is about it's about me being able to stay in a property and you know know my neighbors send my kids to the local school have them go to cubs and scouts and, and whatever else and be part of a community tenants want that just because they can't own doesn't mean they don't want that stability and security of, of being part of society and I just wonder whether encouraging landlords at a younger age to invest with financial support might be the way forward to maintaining that that's a really good idea because if they did that they could make it conditional upon having proper training and they could perhaps also make it conditional upon them giving long fixed terms which would yeah. be good for families so that that would be a really good idea are you going to put that to the minister ben well, one of the th yes, uh, I mean, one, what, one of the, th but I think this comes as part of a package of measures, doesn't it? You know, um, and one certainly one of the things that we have been pushing with the uh, research we've been doing with capital economics is that, and I don't know how how much this is is sort of out there at at, at the moment, but landlords make a contribution of three point six million pound, a billion pounds, sorry. Let's not get my uh, millions and billions muddled up. There's a big difference um, to the to the wider economy. And so we say that by tinkering around with stamp duty, um, if you are bringing a uh, a home back into use, whether you, you know, you're buying an office or you're converting it or whatever, there ought to be far more favourable uh, stamp duty incentives because the reality is that um, that will not only create over 10 years uh, the best part of half a million homes, it will also add the best part of a billion pounds to the tax mm -hmm. revenue over, uh, over the course of 10 years. So, you know, we have to be mindful that we don't have shed loads of money sat around to be able to throw at things. So we need to incentivize a net increase in housing. And I think, you know, if you can dovetail that in with security as well, surely the PRS has got a significant part to play in, in doing that. But, the, but at the moment, you're punished if you're looking to invest in the sector. And that, to me, seems a bit arse about face, uh, to be honest with you, at a time when we've got a supply crisis. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think also the amount of empty homes that are out there that could quite easily be brought back into use. Um, they're not all derelict. Um, they are just sitting empty. And there is an empty homes register that people can access and find out if it's possible to bring that back. And from a financial point of view, it's going to be less outlay to bring a currently structural property back into use into the private rented sector than it is to build it from scratch. Mm. Yeah. And, and Julie, you know, how do we get over the sort of downer that everybody has on the private rented sector and, and landlords? I should choose my words carefully here, but uh, I would welcome your view. Um, I genuinely think it's got to start with the media um, because everybody listens to the media, whether it's social media, whether it is your news, your radio, everybody listens to it. And those people are influential, whether they believe they are or not. And when we're seeing documentaries on, you know, certain TV channels that are, you know, slum landlords, rogue this, you know, my, my landlord ate my dog or whatever they want to call it. It's giving the landlords a bad name from the get go. And yes, we are fully aware that bad news travels a hell of a lot quicker than good news. But when you are constantly drip fed this opinion that all landlords are bad, rather than it is one bad apple that spoils your trough, I think that's really where the mentality has come from because if you didn't see that and weren't drip fed that how would you know that mm. yeah yeah no definitely 
Definitely. So I think it really is about the media changing their attitude towards the private rented sector and really understanding the difference between good landlords and bad landlords, but also good landlords, uh, good tenants and, and bad tenants. And instead of listening to some of the more vocal organisations that are so anti-landlord, um, you know, really getting down to the bones of, of talking to organisations like like your yours, Ben, you know, and really understanding what landlords are going through because it, it isn't all a bed of roses you know we're not all millionaires sitting there watching the pennies roll in it's hard being a landlord it is really hard indeed and you know anybody that thinks it is uh you know a walk in the park uh you know uh, really needs to have their opinions uh reset i think you know telling the the, the story of the good work uh, that landlords uh, can do and do do uh, is really really important but i suspect mm. there are some organizations out there um that won't uh that, that won't accept those arguments because it's not convenient for those arguments um you know, for their for their own finances unfortunately but we you know we we have to redouble our efforts and tell a positive story because mm. there are so many positives out there Absolutely. And, and 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 julie just lastly from me do you think there is much to be optimistic about you know that landlords will be concerned about um you know the direction of travel but we await the white the white paper with with interest is is it still of, of interest to you know to to be operating in this sector what's your, what's your view absolutely yeah it's it's worth operating in this sector it's one of those situations people will always need homes it's a bit like being a funeral director you're never actually <laughs> going to be out of work um but at the same time it's knowing your industry i think for for far too long agents and landlords alike have gone into this industry knowing it's not very heavily regulated and anyone can set up a letting agency and many of them do and it's all a bit kind of we just work through it day by day and if we mess it up we mess it up I think we need to be going into this understanding it's a business look at it as a business and understand your industry the landlords and letting agents that do that will automatically improve the sector and make it grow because they will be encouraging others to work to their standards and i think once we've got that mentality under our belt that it's a business it's not just something that you do to get your beer tokens i think that's where we're going to be changing but like i say i see more and more young people super interested in getting into the private rented sector for all the right reasons they're coming to networking events they're doing training because they want to learn before they start and i think that's the mentality that will, will break the back of the the poor um media that we've been getting and and really the mentality that maybe has had the the landlords 40 or 50 years ago really hope from the young that's brilliant. <laughs> absolutely that's great well that's a, that's a good moment to uh, to end on because i think our time has come to an end so uh thank you very much julie for no problem to us. thank you for having me okay well that was a, that was a good discussion wasn't it ben julie's always got a lot to say always got a lot to say and uh, a lot of sense in there as as well um you know she puts her fingers on the critical issues that are in the sector this is i guess you know a lot of speculation kind of before we see the white paper in the next few weeks or so um but it's really good to see her sort of work on mediation conciliation bearing mm -hmm. fruit um, a very realistic approach to sort of resolving disputes and uh, i think we can see that that's going to have legs for the longer term if we were going to be you know betting people so um no it's really really good yeah i mean because she does all this mediation work julia is a really good person to to tell us 
what people actually think and uh, and what they actually want. I have to say, I was really interested in her idea about um, uh, young people wanting to get into the sector and you know perhaps having special grants for, for land for young landlords to encourage them to be landlords I, I think that's a brilliant idea because then you could have training um and uh, you know it, it could kick start the sector i think anything that um that allows the supply of new homes to be increased has got to be a good thing we don't have anything at the moment there's no you know there's no incentive uh, to be uh, investing in the private rented sector and you know if you dovetail that with all of the um interventions that government have made you know we're seeing numbers full uh, mm -hmm. fall so you know surely you, you know at a point of a housing crisis that's not what we want to see so you know julie's got ideas there's some really great ideas there um but anything that really uh, enhances the supply of homes uh, to tenants in the prs will be uh, warmly welcome i would have thought yeah brilliant so we've um i think our next episode we're going to be talking about wales where there's Indeed. big changes coming along big changes in Wales so we've got I think Simon White the lead civil servant uh, joining us uh, next month when there will be roughly a month's countdown to the implementation of renting homes so worth tuning in for yeah okay well we'll see you then see you then